Hi, Jun. My name is Sheila Hearn. I'm um, here to talk to you for a while about the Mary Rafferty Journalism Fund. Um, Mary died in early in January, early uh, 2012, and I, I, many of you may know her work. But it was felt from friends and family of Mary's after she died that um, it would be great to do something, um, not just to honour her as a person and as a journalist, but also to promote the values and ethics that she worked. Um, that, that was part of her work all, all through her career. So um, the Journalism Fund was set up. Um, it's really only in its infancy in terms of when you look at kind of other international models. We've had our second year this year. Um, the first year we were supported by the One Foundation philanthropic, philanthropic organisation who were in its last year of operation. So it was very, very lucky that they felt what we were doing was fit into their um, models of philanthropy. So they funded three rounds uh, for the, in the first year, in 2013, and they dictated to some extent the topics, which were migrant issues, um, children's rights and mental health, all of which had been areas that Mary had worked in, in television and in print for many years. So it was, a, a, it was a, an ideal match, it was a match made in heaven and it was great because we had been thinking about how you would set up such a, a fund, such an organisation and there are no other Irish models. The Simon Cumbers Fund is the only other fund that I'm aware of that um, gives out money to freelance journalists other than perhaps the BAI which is specifically for radio and TV. Um, which is fantastic and has done, you know, in, in now I think probably eight years of the Sound and Vision Fund has funded, you know, many, many independent radio and uh, TV companies and, uh, and individuals and it's been terrific but there's been nothing for print journalists and the Simon Cumbers focuses primarily on developing issues and they're funded by um, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs. So that's a very specific area, and you need to be working in a developing country to qualify for the Simon Cumbers Fund. The Mary Rafferty Journalism Fund, the first year I was saying it, it was confined to three topics, and um, this year, which was its second year of operation, we kind of opened it up to anything that's in the public interest. Um, and it was great. We got a, a you know a, a agricultural um, topics being submitted. We got medical issues. We got all sorts. Uh, and one one that we found was in the developing world as well. So you know it was great to have that open up. Um, we the second year of operation we were got some financial support from RTE and from um, uh, private individuals, and we're looking at funding models for the future. Unlike when you think of philanthropy, I often think of a very, very rich person who has a lot of money, who thinks this is a really good idea and uh, donates quite a bit of money. Mary was a freelance journalist. She left uh, full-time permanent and pensionable employment in RT in 2002. We worked together there for many years, and I left in 2000, and Mary left in 2002, and we worked together since then in a freelance capacity, which you are all aware of is kind of from one project to the next. So when Mary died, she didn't have a, a large amount of money to donate, so it wasn't, you know, other when you think of philanthropic models. And we looked at a lot of uh, European and international funds where you'd have, you know, the Bill Gates Foundation, or you'd have people who were very, very wealthy who would donate a part of their money towards supporting ethical journalism. Um, we don't have that, unfortunately. 
Um, we do, however, have a very, very, very strong commitment by there's a, a, a board, and I'll show you a bit about that later, and um, there's a board and an advisory group, and we're hugely committed that um, the Mary Rafter Journals Fund for that will last for a very long time. But funds are modest. But I think um, in saying that, there's a really strong commitment to support um, not just young journalists. We would love to see many young students and younger journalists coming out showing commitment to doing um, ethical-based projects. But it's open to anybody. The maximum amount we we awarded was eighteen thousand, um, which wouldn't fund a television or a radio program. It would, however, give people perhaps a, a window of opportunity to go and do the research that's necessary to um, present a strong proposal for a, a radio or TV program. And it would certainly help print journalists to um, um, get work done that they're not dependent totally on a commissioning editor. Um, that's just a little bit about Mary. I'm sure many of you would have known um, some of her work. She worked in, in Dublin in the early days for McGill magazine, and then she went into um, television, into RTE. And they're just a couple of the kind of very well-known programmes that she would have done. Um, I know like the Gallagher story came from a, pro, uh, a, a story she did in, in Dublin years ago when the, fronts, the front page... I always remember it was uh, Patrick Gallagher, property speculator and brat. And it was always curious what the lawyers would say. Was, that, was it defamatory to call somebody a brat? Um, and eventually that, that story, which she'd worked on uh, many years ago, and it was a very oh, it was like, you know, deeply rooted in politics and finance and um, cosy cartels. And, and it, it resulted in two programmes in RTE, for one for Tonight, Today Tonight and the second one, a follow-up which won numerous awards for her States of Fear, I'm sure many of you um, will be aware of. And uh, she wrote a book following that based on the research for that, which led to, well, contributed in, in some, in no small way, I would think, to the setting up of the Rhine Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, which resulted in the Institutional Redress Board being established. Um, she made Cardinal Secrets, which, again, was really groundbreaking um, research and work that resulted in um, the Murphy Commission which looked into clerical sex abuse in the Dublin Diocese um, and finally in Behind the Walls which um, I, I would have worked on with many of this and it went out in September 2011 when Mary was very very ill um, and it was a two part series in the history of psychiatric institutions so she never shied away from difficult topics um, never one for doing taking the easy way out and they're all extremely challenging and they challenge the state and they challenge the powers and the authorities and that was um, that was what her friends and family wanted to continue and the fund was set up with that in mind there is a, um, a board of directors and um, that's, that's them there um, looking just going through the, the first three rounds to give you an idea of a profile of the type of applications and the type of areas it was open to anybody you could have a, a, an online publication um, a local radio station we funded places like Athlone Community Radio local newspapers while one of the, the remits is you want the story to have a broad, as broad as possible a reach, um, you know, it can't be just RTE, Drive Time, or whatever the most, Morning Around, whatever the most popular radio programs is, and the front cover of the Irish Times. You know, that's fantastic, and they have huge 
um, readership and viewers, but what we really wanted was to kind of encourage local and community um, journalists as well. People applied for, uh, we attempted wherever possible to give people what they applied for. I always worked on the basis of, you know, if, 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 you, if organisations do that and you cut off 25% then people will add that on for their next application, which is kind of self-defeating. If you need the money, you need the money. There are certain things that were ineligible. People would apply for, um, you know, to buy equipment and that wasn't um, eligible. It was really to give people the time and the space to get down to work on a, a story and give as much attention to the research as possible. The migrants' issues, similar number, there was 20 applications and nine were successful, so it's kind of a 50-50. And again, the grants were all, you know, roughly around four, five, six thousand. <coughs> I suppose in the first year we were conscious that people wouldn't be aware of the fund and we did a considerable amount of promotion through Facebook and Twitter and online. Um, but it was, and we would hope that word gets out and people will apply uh, in the coming years. This year we just had one round of, um, of funding and we felt that this would give more focus for the applicants rather than you know, rushing in and thinking, when's the deadline? And there were three deadlines in the first year that we, we had a longer lead-up time, so people would hear about it, would consider what project they might like to submit for. Um, and so we're kind of constantly evolving and changing to, to suit where we feel would be most effective use of the money. Um, this year, the largest grant was 14,000, and the smallest was 2,000, but they would be, have had very different needs. Um, So who can apply? Basically anybody who's working in journalism. Staff journalists, freelance, print, radio, television, community, and any amount of applications. Each application was considered on its own merit. And it, you know, two people could easily, one person could easily get funding twice if both applications were deserved it, or if we felt was it. Um, I'm on the judging panel with Olivia O'Leary. <coughs> Was a magnificent chair, Conor Brady, who's former editor of the Irish Times, Professor Mary Cochran, who is Professor of Sociology in Maynooth, Colm Tobin, um, former editor of McGill and uh, worked in many publications and author. And we will stay in place for three years and then we'll uh, change over to have a different group of judges, which I always think is very healthy in any organisation to change over. We're totally independent of the funders, whoever those funders might be, which is really good. So you're not having to kind of have an eye to, oh gosh, I, hope, I, you know, I wonder will Orti be happy with this or will one foundation be happy with this? Once we were given the freedom to set it up, we then will decide on merit of each proposal, whether it deserves funding or not. Um, and they're the basic criteria. All of this information is available on the, the Mary Journalism, Mary Raftery Journalism Fund website. The usual terms and condi conditions, I'm sure any of you who have applied for any of the funding through BAI or any other outlets, there's usually people pay a percentage up front and um, 
the second on completion of a project. It was 50-50, we did in the first year, give applicants 50% up front and then 50% when they finished. But we adjusted that because we felt from feedback from applicants that you actually spent most of the money when you were traveling around meeting people and doing the work that you, you know, that was when you needed the money most. So we adjusted that, so 70% up front and then 30% later. We were absolutely delighted. Uh, some of the applicants went on to win awards for their work in areas and there's some really, really terrific work done from uh, support from the fund. We do, um, as well as the funding rounds, we do other activities this year in collaboration with RTE and I think it was the first time that they had done a, a journalism course on this model which was for internal people in RTE and they offered the fund place so we advertised it meant it was open to anybody and you didn't have to work for RTE so we got somebody we got somebody um, a place on the, the journalism course which is really good because apart from the colleges it's very difficult and you probably found that Rebecca as well you know kind of ongoing training or um, there aren't that many opportunities there aren't um, and this was a real hands-on broadcast, and I know they, they kind of really were put through their paces. It's difficult if you start night and you don't know anyone as well. It's, yeah. it's extra hard. So, yeah. that's, that's so people could apply to us, and again, um, on our recommendations, they went, they did the course. We also ran, it was 15 years, which I couldn't believe, last April since States of Fear was first broadcast. And it was, it was rebroadcast once in 2003, but it was put out very late at night. And, and there was no RT player when, we, uh, when it was made and first broadcast in 1999. So there were, you know, so many people said, oh God, that was a great programme. I never actually saw it though. Because unless you were sitting at home, at your, in front of your telly at half past nine at night, you didn't see it. We felt that it would be a great opportunity to mark the event. And we had a month-long series of screenings in the IFI where we showed some other documentaries which covered a range of issues that the fund had a particular interest in. And then culminating on the last day with the three episodes of States of Fear and a couple of panel discussions about ethics in journalism, storytelling, um, and all of, in, all of those kind of topics about how you deal with material how you deal with very sensitive material, how you deal with the legal issues that arise from it. So the, the fund, while, and I suppose it's called the Mary Ashley Journalism Fund, but we do, we are looking at um, other opportunities to promote investigative journalism and to support journalists who are out there doing very difficult and uh, frequently courageous work. It was the one, uh, the one adjective, I worked with Mary for, gosh, 25 years, um, and it was the one thing that if I had to describe it was courageous and it's not always easy and it is certainly not popular when you're working for an organisation to stand up to your managing editor, your, your managing director and say no, I'm not doing that um, when you're being told, for example, and I mentioned before, they wanted to put States Fair out at half past eleven at night and Mary just said no, like that would be an absolute broadcast wilderness and it was going out at half past nine or it wasn't going out at all and it takes courage, you know, even on those kind of practical levels. And it's very difficult if you're a young, a young journalist and you're totally dependent for your living on, you know, doing what is um, your editor suggests is necessary. Um, so it was the one thing, uh, courage. And it's very hard when you're starting out without, um, 
if you don't have supports as support of an organisation. Um, that's basically kind of a whistle stop tour of the fund and what it does. Where we haven't announced the round for 2015, but I'd anticipate it would be late spring, early summer this year. It was um, the fund was uh, was June, and we'd give people about a 12-week lead-in to um, apply, send their applications in, and then it's dealt with fairly promptly, so that people aren't left kind of trying to figure out, you know, okay, if I get this money, then I can go on to do other things. So you you know pretty quickly where you can you know, diary the rest of your year and what you're applying for. So if there's any questions, I'd be only delighted to answer them. Yes. So uh, I don't think the Ireland just stood this. Um, can you pick what you talk about, or are there specific topics and themes every, at every round that you choose from? Last year we decided just to have it open. It could be absolutely anything. Um, there were criteria like it must be a, you know, a, a, an issue that's of public interest. It must have a certain criteria, but in terms of topic or subject, the, it was wide open. Uh, yeah, I think that's. I think it's the way forward. So um, I think we'll we'll open the floor to all questions now. If if anyone has any um, for either myself or Sheila. Um, Feel free to ask, or if you want to talk to us after, it's no problem either. Anyone have any questions about radio? Okay, yes. Well, yeah. How much equipment do you use? Do you have a, a mini disc recorder? Do you know what? I um, I had a mini disc when I started. Now I have this um, I have this device. It's literally got a USB at the end of it. It's a sound recorder. Now I've seen journalists use their iPhones. This seems to be a new development. So you can use your iPhone because the broadcast quality is absolutely fine. You just need to check it's okay with the station. So I would recommend a recording device that has a USB connection or just an iPhone. Or the station will supply you with microphones, but they tend to be very bulky. And if you're running from one place to the next, if you're reporting, for example, um, it can be a bit of a hindrance looking everything around with you. No, but you want something to stick in the minister's face. Oh, well, then you're going for the hard-hitting microphone if you want. Bring a, bring a microphone from the station. They supply the equipment. But I bring a small one around with me. And how about using Pro Tools? Do Pro Tools. We yeah. use Pro Tools, but we more so use um, Adobe Audition. Right, and right. some people use Cool Edit, but it has changed. I mean, um, yeah. as we were talking about earlier, I mean, they expect you to edit things on your phone now as well. So, I mean, there are editing programs for audio on your mobiles that you can get. Um, for video, there's VideoPad, there's, there's loads of them out there, but you need to check with the station that the software you're using um, is good enough for uh, broadcast quality. For editing, I usually use Audacity, which has the great advantage of being free. The principles are the same editing in all of them. RTE at the moment is very, very much favour Pro Tools. Um, there's, yeah. As you said, there's also... There are other solutions. Okay, I'm just going back to Carly then. If, like, I, I've never applied for anything like this before, but I'm wondering um, is there much, and how much do you involve yourself in helping the, the, the people who get the phone while they're working? Is it is it a lot or is it not at all? Or It's essentially not at all. Um, 
you need to before there is advice for how to apply and um, there is we use DHO communications company they kind of administer the fund for us and they're fantastic and they would give, they would have an open session where if you're considering applying you come along to something like this and go through all of the details of what's needed and after that anybody who applies they need to have the commitment from an editor to publish we need to know that this will end up being published but it's you know if, in terms of value for money there's no point in funding something that's never going to hit the air hit, hit, hit print so um, you need to have a commitment and we would hope that you know, editors and people in commission that would offer some support. And we are looking at models of trying to encourage uh, younger uh, journalist students or younger journalists to kind of get a chance to get going. We got in touch with several international groups and there's, um, there's one I should mention, the European Journalism Fund, um, which you can apply for. They have criteria as well. They would be, uh, it's for joint projects, it's European projects, so you need to have a kind of a partner organisation or a partner journalist somewhere, anywhere in the EU. Um, and uh, they're fantastic source of fund as well because there is nothing else. There's nothing other than Simon Cumbers and the Mary Rock Insurance Fund. There's nothing that I know of. Um, I don't know if any. Uh, it's just the European Journalism Fund. It's based in Brussels. Uh, there, and that was set up on um, there's a Belgian fund called Pascal de Cruz, which would be specifically Belgian, but it was very similar. Thank you. Be very similar to the Ray Raftery Journal Fund. It was a journalist who he was actually killed by a drunk driver, and his friends and family got together and did essentially what what we're doing now. So I kind of met up with the the, the director of that, and it was like, what have you done that you shouldn't have done, or what should we do that and it was great because, you know, great believer in don't, no need to reinvent the wheel. If somebody else has done this model, let's learn from them and not waste a lot of time. And um, it was very interesting. We had come across experiences that they hadn't come across before, uh, which was great. In our one year, I could tell them something rather than just pick his brains. But they were the only models that we came across. So we were using them as best practice or most effective use of, of money also. Like, we want to know where they get money from. Is it worth going to the EU looking for money, for example? And they said no, because it'll take you five years. You'd have to fill out you know, more paperwork than you have time you know, in, in any given week to do. So it's not really work it, worth it. Look to your own government. Um, and the European, uh, the Pascal de Cruz is funded solely by the Belgian government. Just, just like Simon Cumbers is funded by the Irish government. So it was like that models for funding. We need some very, very rich people is what we need. A very rich philanthropist. <laughs> but then you're based, then you have a, an ethical dilemma who do you take money from? Do you take money from anywhere? Or don't you? Without naming any individuals, but if certain people came and said, here's a cheque for 200,000 for your fund, do we just say, thank you very much, that's great? Or do you look at the sources of funding? So there's lots of issues. Um, but it's amazing we have had, you know. In terms of, we only, you know, maximum of 18,000, it's not huge. None of the um, board members get paid, none of the advisory group get paid. Um, so it's kind of run on a very tight, tight budget to make most effective use. Um, Sheila, just a quick question. In terms of people applying, do you give them feedback if they're not successful oh, yeah. as to why they weren't? You do, yeah. in the yeah. same way, say, as the, the sound and vision thing yeah. would, yeah? yeah. And do you take subsequent applications? If someone fails on an application, can they apply again on broadly the same project? Yeah, no, it happened because we're so 
so new. Sure, uh, yeah. It hasn't really happened. Um, but absolutely, if there were things that they just fell down, now if they apply and they haven't ticked the boxes, um, DHO will go straight back and say, look, just send us in the letter of commitment, just send us in. Sure, you know, good, yeah. It wouldn't be a, just a, a cold yeah. cut off. You, you, you'd yeah. be given an opportunity to come up with what you know, was missing. But like, I think feedback is really important. And a question for Rebecca, just in relation, yeah. do, do you take um, you know, freelance reports in uh, Q102 and how would one go about pitching something or um, how much do they pay? As in, um, as in items? Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, well, not so much. Local stations don't really. Um, you're looking at national. If you, want, if you have an idea and you think it would make a good filler on air, then I would approach a national station. Um, RTE are great like that. Um, RTE, Radio 1, uh, 2 FM. It depends on the type of um, the topic you're talking about, I suppose. Now, I know um, 2 FM, they take a lot on Tuberty's show. Um, so what I'd do is I'd find out the name of the producer on Tuberty and I'd email them your idea and they pay very, very well for those filler segments. But if you want to get into news, um, then what I'd suggest is getting experience in either a community station or approaching a smaller station like East Coast or Sunshine where they will train you up and then you can use that training as a basis to break into a bigger station. So the pay is good once you get the hours. But uh, you could be working crazy hours. Like you could get two two shifts a week. But I mean, it's a start. And you're going to be working weekends as well in the beginning, but you get used to it and it's a very rewarding job. It is. Rebecca, regarding voice training, is yes. there any facility for somebody who could go to improve their broadcasting voice? Okay. I'm thinking of it, there was a leading politician, um, you might <coughs> think of her name. And, uh, well, <laughs> yes, okay. but the whole point was how to strengthen her name. I suggested that she go down to the the School of Opera Singing, which was right beside her. But uh, I don't think they, they had time to deal with the problem. And I just got out of town on that one pretty fast. But. Yeah, voice is a huge thing. Um, I mean, there are a lot of colleges that offer night courses in radio where they'll provide voice coaching as part of that. But what I would recommend would be public speaking courses. I mean, you'd learn Toastmasters. more, you'd learn more yeah. of Toastmasters than you would in a radio course, to be honest. Just from experience, what I would do if I was you and I was interested, I would get involved in a community station, so you're sitting in front of a mic, you're perfectly comfortable, not a bother on you, and then do your Toastmasters as well. I mean, there are courses out there, I studied radio for two years, um, I've no regrets, but if I could go back, I'd do it at night time for a year, because it's not entirely essential. Well, you can go to people that will do that as a business. There are people who do it as a business as well, but the only thing the only thing I would say is I would do a lot of research on that. Um, I'd check their reputation and I'd see how many well-established uh, stations they've worked for. Now, once you get into a radio station, um, they do have courses um, there, and they send staff on them. I know in Q102, we do a course, course with Learning Waves. A guy from the BBC comes over and voice coaches us, and that's once a year and FM 104 do that as well and so do UTV News so he's really good but I think you have to be in the door to get a hold of him but that's what I would do if I was you there's no need to spend loads of money on loads of courses. There's a Toastmasters here and I believe on a Thursday it's a fiver to come in. Yeah, you're better off doing that. 
and then getting your experience in community radio. That's what I think. Because you need confidence and you need the voice. I mean, you're not going to get confidence from sitting in a classroom. You have to be in front of people just talking the talk. As I mentioned, listen to other news readers or listen to presenters and then try and copy the way they present. Record it yourself. You can record it on your phone, play it back to yourself, criticise the hell out of yourself and uh, eventually you'll work your way up. And the way I'm talking now isn't the way I read the news. Obviously, it's me. But when I go into news mode, I'm in news mode. Then same with presenting, it's completely different as well. Any other questions? Do you know anyone who's overcome uh, speech impediment to work in radio? Because this is one of the issues I had in college was I did uh, radio in my masters because I knew I wanted to write print, but I wanted to try radio. Um, but I had a very bad stammer up until I was a teenager and then it got better. But then in college I did an hour long current affairs current affairs live program and just was awful because I was confident but the stammer still came out. Um, so do you know anybody in the industry who's overcome it or who kind of goes about it and it's not an issue anymore? Well, do you know, it's funny you should say that. Um, it can work against you, obviously, because it's tough competition to get into the industry. But there was a guy that worked with me and he fell very ill with cancer. And uh, he was out of work for a few months and he, uh, he managed to recover. But he came back to the station and he had a bit of a slur. So what he did was he went for voice coaching and that's improved his speech massively. He is now reading the news every day. So he's a fine example of someone who has overcome it. And they thought it was permanent and it wasn't. He's, he's lucky. So there is, you can, if you work hard, you can get there. Definitely. I wouldn't give up. And I wouldn't take no for an answer either if, if you get rejection letters. I get them all the time. <laughs> okay, that's it. Thanks very much for uh, joining us. If you want to talk to either of us after, uh, feel free. I'll be here for a little while. But, uh, thanks a million. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.